Thank you for being on TMBS. Pleasure is mine. The pleasure is mine. In the former Yugoslavia, why did the authorities permit drug use? It was part of a complicated, complex, and quite intelligent strategy. The same thing happened, in, it's interesting to, to learn, my Polish friends were telling me after Jaruzelski's coup d'etat in 1980. The idea was anything should be permitted just so that it keeps the younger generation especially depoliticized. So it was drugs, it was uh, pornography, which was instantly legalized in ex-Yugoslavia uh, uh, in early 80s, and uh, uh, religious obscurantism, New Age, Oriental wisdom, meditation, and so on and so on. Anything goes just to keep the younger generation depoliticized. It was quite an interesting strategy, you know. Did it work? Not quite, but for some time it did. But not quite. But uh, but what is so interesting is how uh, how uh, and I think one should now approach it from a certain distance how so-called really existing socialism effectively worked. It was a totally different strategy. You know, people in the West think we were brainwashed all the time uh, into official propaganda. No, even those in power did not take the official propaganda seriously. And you know where we find the same thing, even in a harsher forum, to go to actual events, not to get lost in old Yugoslav nostalgia. I'm now half prohibited in China because I signed some letters of protest. It's not so much Hong Kong, what goes on there. It's more Marxist students being arrested there. Now, Xi, or whatever you pronounce it, their president, on the one hand, tries to enforce a kind of a return to Marxism. You know, they are reprinting in hundreds of thousands of copies works of Marx, Lenin, Mao, blah, blah. But friends are telling me at the same time, it's considered extremely risky, even dangerous, if you actually read these works. Because right. then they are afraid it may happen what is now happening. Young students read this, say, okay, working class movement, what can we do for our workers? And they get connected then with many factories around Beijing, chemical factories where, of course, workers get poisoned and so on and so on. And this is the worst thing you can do in China today. The worst thing you can uh, do in China is actually read Marx. Even as Marx, it, yeah. even even some of Mao Mao's texts and so on. Incidentally, this may interest your readers. I found so fascinating. It was today's or yesterday's news uh, how uh, uh, Chinese state agencies are now in a publicity offensive, warning the West. They are saying, "You see, you supported Hong Kong unrest. Now it's returning to you." You have also dissatisfaction, arrest in uh, unrest. Sorry, in Chile, in Spain, and so on and so on. What shocked me so much is that if you uh, ignore the official rhetoric, they are really offering to those in power in the West a kind of solidarity pact. Their true message is: 
let's forget all the crap about socialism. We are in power, you're in power. Shouldn't we combat unrest and dissatisfaction together? It's a kind of a call to solidarity of solidarity to those in power. It's very interesting. Do you think when you look at the protests across the globe today, whether it be in Hong Kong or Chile or Haiti or Ecuador, do you think of the work that you did on Lenin and the different conceptions of freedom? Because it seems to me that some of the protests are about protecting liberal rights that have been established in Hong Kong, as an example. And I support them. I always say that I would be incredibly yes, hypocritical also, to, yes. to sit in but, Brooklyn and but, oppose them. And then yeah, the others are, are economic. You. I am well informed from friends in yeah. Hong Kong. You know that the version that we get in our media is not quite fair. This is what Pe- uh, there Pepe was Escobar told us. From the beginning, us. a clear yeah. class dimension. Mm. Those who began protesting in Hong Kong were mostly from uh, not really poor, but nonetheless poorer sections. Their fee- and their target were the new rich Chinese rich who collaborate quite well with Chinese authorities and so on and so on. Only later, they they made this slight move into, you know, all those stupidities, Trump, save us, singing God save the Queen, and so on and so on. But there is also a social dimension even there. Don't underestimate it. There's it's a not social a dimension even there. Protest. Yeah. That's fascinating. What do you... Uh... What do you think? Are you are you as enthusiastic as all of the rest of us about uh, Bernie Sanders in general? But also, I'm very interested in what you think of Bernie Sanders and Jeremy Corbyn. And I would also put President Lula, who's a political prisoner, uh, as voices of sort of social democratic policies, but actually of a certain um kind of moral decency in the face of the decadent it's new right. It's extremely important what you say now. I follow here somebody who is hated by much of the left today, unfortunately, in the United States, but I still deeply respect her. How do you pronounce her name? The one who uh, uh, wrote Kill All Norms. Oh, Angela. Angela. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Her point is that today the old right is the one who appropriated this brutal mocking obscenities and so on and so on. And I think I like, this is crucial what you said, theoretically even, when you said common decency and so on and so on. I think it's not too risky. Now the left has the unique chance to address all those ordinary people and so on and say, sorry guys, can't you see the postmodern obscenity, undermining of values, Christian values that you deplore so much. These guys are in power. We, we, the left, are the true moral majority. We are for the decency of the common man and so on and so on. It's a unique chance. I, my point would be that this is the true genius of, of, <clears throat> Bernie Sanders, as somebody who is close to him, I always, as an old Stalinist, have underground contact there. Uh, <laughs> he, to- he told me, he told me, Bernie's target are not these mid-level Democrats. He wants to get at those disappointed lower middle class people who otherwise would have voted for Trump. 
he targets exactly those. That's why it's so important. I almost cried when the squad, uh, Alessandria, Octavio Cortes, and so on, when they decided to support Bernie for purely generational reasons. So that it's not just this young, feminist, gay rights generation. My formula of paradise is this younger, radical generation connected with the representative of precisely old white men. Bernie is an old white man. And it should be a proof to all of us that they, we should fight for them. They should be our allies. My last point here, don't be afraid, I will not get lost, is that I agree with what you said before, social democratic politics and so on and so on. And that's crucial. Uh, look closely at the program of Bernie, even what Lula did and uh, Jeremiah Corbyn and so on. Uh, measure it with standards of what went on in Europe half a century ago, at that high point of welfare state. Well, compare Bernie Sanders' program with Swedish social democracy, all of Palme and so on. He is much more modest than they. So here we can measure the, the state of things today. What half a century ago in Europe was the standard moderate even social democracy is now considered as one way to Venezuela or whatever you call it and so on. That's why I think we should fully support them. Although we should also criticize them. By them, I mean uh, 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 not so much Bernie as Corbyn. That's, but that's another specific point. I think that the way Labour Party is managing practic Brexit is catastrophic. At the end, I predict uh, uh, Boris Johnson may win. But generally, I think we today we don't have to be extra radical. We don't have to support Bernie with this secret manipulative calculation. Yeah, yeah, he's the first step. Then we will grab power, introduce some socialism. No, just be sincerely for Bernie. It's enough. Mm -hmm. You know, it reminds me. Of what you're talking about with because um, and I think it's it's a distinction we're going to have to uh, yeah. draw strategically. I was talking about this with Adolf Reed. I mean, it becomes really quite simple because the common decency, of course, also actually cuts across, um, you know, People think that there that it's only in certain areas that people support, as an example, equity for gay, lesbian and transgender people. Yeah, That's yeah. totally false. And I'm always reminded of this very interesting study that was released. And if I remember it correctly, I'll paraphrase it. But most Americans across all groups didn't like political correctness and what they meant by political. Well, they broke it down. Conservatives meant civil rights and so on because they opposed that. But other Americans just meant social. They just meant basically being uptight and complaining about comedy and having speech codes and all of this sort of thing. There was one other thing, though, in the study that was even more unpopular than political correctness, and that was hate speech. And that to me was like, right, this is exactly where people actually are. You can persuade them on the grounds of justice, decency and equity. That has a very broad appeal outside of the specific cultural manifestations of different sorts of politics, not as a matter of substance, but as a matter of style, really. Yeah, but I totally agree with you. And I will even give a, a 
slightly different, but in accordance with your point, point to it. You know, often in politics, who, who was the writer who said this? I think Kurt Vonnegut. He said we should be very careful with appearances because appearances are ultimately all that we have. Mm. In politics, there is always a substance in style, yeah. you know, because style is the way we do what we do. And politics is never simply neutral, like we want that goal and then you can kill, lie, whatever for that goal. No, the goal must be realized already in the very way you are in the very way you are doing it. That's why I think it's crucial what, uh, it's crucial what you say. And to be quite open here, my critical remarks against political correctness, of course, do not, absolutely not, uh, target their goals and okay. so on. Right. It's just I sometimes feel that the approach, the way they do it, these tight regulations, the spirit of suspicion, uh, 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 horror at humor, always this obsession, my God, if I use that expression, who will be hurt, and so on and so on. I will give you, just so that I don't get lost, uh, a, a simple example. Sometimes I am criticized as being insensitive to race or even Islamophobic and so on, but I Notice that these reproaches never came to me from these groups allegedly offended by me. I learned just now that my uh, Against Double Blackmail book that is, was translated in pirated editions in uh, Lebanon and Egypt is very popular then. They are inviting me there. They like me there. I am in permanent contact with radical black circles in New York, the other side of where you are, which means Newark and so on, where they have mm -hmm. now Baraka, a radical black mayor and so on. Mm -hmm. I have very good relations with them. It's typical how white liberals worry, will they be offended and so on. My God, allow them, What whenever I have contacts with this group, I discover that they can immediately differentiate between, or I will call them, it may be problematic to some people, ordinary obscenities, which are just a way to break the ice and to establish a true contact. They can immediately distinguish. It's, I never had a problem between this and <laughs> sorry and true offensiveness. What In the people, debate, can I just jump in because this is interesting please. to me. In yeah. the debate with Jordan Peterson, you actually critiqued some of this white politically correct attitude on very interesting <laughs> grounds because you it was psychoanalytic as I read it. But you also said what you're actually doing here, whether you're being, you know, whether you're just being MAGA, which is just being a, a you know, racist yeah. and so on. Or see, I'm mimicking your speech patterns now. Yeah. Or yeah. or <laughs> if you're in that woke mode, but either way. You're censoring yourself as the universal subject and everything is filtering through your comfort system, not a genuine multiplicity. Yes, that's my, now you put it wonderfully because you know what always uh, makes me suspicious when I 
listen to these anti-racist white liberals is how in all the self-denigration, yes, we white, we are uh, responsible for everything, colonialism, sexism, murder, and so on, uh, uh, I mean, uh, ethnic cleansing, and so on. At the same time, while renouncing their identity, and while fully supporting the identity of others, there is a racist trick in it. White liberals like blacks, Native Americans, and so on, to develop their cultural identity. No, they should be allowed to do more, to define their own universality. White liberals secretly reserve the universal dimension for them. Right. They like the others to be particular. Isn't it wonderful to have Native Americans singing their song, dances, their food, and so on and so on? That's why, as you may have heard or read, my hero, maybe I'm exaggerating, but I did read him. One of my heroes is Malcolm X. He saw this very clearly. His point of X is we blacks were, by being torn out of our uh, 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 communal space in Africa, we were deprived of our particular identity, our roots. And his point is not, let's fill in this X with a new identity. His point is explicitly, this X, the lack of particular identity, gives us blacks a unique chance to propose our own universalism, which will be more radical and better than white men's uh, universalism. May I, may I just, I want to just add one other example yeah. that I used recently for a yeah. book that I'm, uh, that I just finished actually. And yeah. this is a good, great uh, liberal economist, Amartya Sen, um, who, you know, development is freedom and so on. And he went, in the 1990s, he argued against the authoritarian governments in Malaysia and Singapore because yeah. they said we have Asian values. And that meant we don't allow freedom of assembly and speech and yeah. so on. And then what he said is there are two positions. There are Western liberals who say the rest of the world needs to mimic the, the West in order to have democracy yeah. and human rights. Yeah. Then these despot in Malaysia says – no, because we have our own culture. What Sen did is he said, of course, democracy and human rights are universal and they are found in the universalities of any tradition on Earth. And that's the work. Absolutely. Which means also that uh, uh, you put it very nicely, uh, we, which also means that uh, against those who criticize me of, of subscribing to uh, of subscribing to Huntington's Clash of Civilizations. No, uh, on, on the contrary, mockingly, I called the thesis of Clash of Civilizations today's, hunt, how do you call the disease? Huntington's disease or whatever. <laughs> you know. Yeah, it's, it's, no, my point is, that's my message to my Arab friends, Jewish friends, wherever, blacks, Latino Americans. We have our fight here in the West. You have your own fight. It's not for us to teach you. It's for all of us to find a way to connect our fight with your fight. It must always be potentially a universal fight. So there is a clash within each civilization. And I'm here, sometimes ironically sounding as Eurocentric. By this, I mean the following. Yes, Europe is colonialism and so on and so on. But sorry, in European tradition, also a certain emancipatory legacy is present and it is 
on the basis of this legacy that we can today develop a very brutal and justified criti criticism of everything that is wrong in European tradition. So we should not be afraid to say, yes, we have our own tradition, which is in itself split. There is a clash in our tradition. And I'm well aware how this clash is at work in other traditions. For example, when I was in India, I discovered a total split between official side, and this is in India, not only Modi and this neo-Hinduist, but even some cultural theorists and so on who play Indian identity and a much stronger political and cultural movement for universalization in, uh, to use concrete names. It's not just, uh, it's not just the Gandhi tradition. There is also a key figure in modern India, Ambedkar, yeah. who was for universalism, who said the defeat of Buddhism, because he saw in Buddhism a much greater potential for universalism. Because he was, because he was low caste, so he embraced Buddhism to reject the caste system. Yeah, you have this, while Gandhi, you know, he was here very ambiguous. He said they are all children of God. But this didn't mean let's abolish castes. This means just let's acknowledge the decency and the proper place to each of the castes. Sorry, this is not enough today. Right. And in every culture, we can find something. We can find something like this. It reminds That's me true, also true. of us uh, how CLR James in one of my favorite books, Black Jacobins, he said yeah. the Haitian the Haitian Revolution is not only universal and of course a defeat of Western imperialism, colonialism, but it's also the fulfillment. It's the highest expression of the French Revolution. Absolutely, uh, you put it so nicely, and I closely study. I know I've read books and so on on the Haiti Revolution. I even propose this thesis that. It's only through the Haiti Revolution, because Haitians uh, consciously refer to French Revolution, they conceive themselves just as the expansion, actualization of the French Revolution. But I claim it's only through Haiti Revolution that the French Revolution became a truly universal world historical event. Without that, it would be just, uh, uh, just some European thing. But you know what's so interesting? How this was too much, unfortunately, even for the so-called left wing of the, of the, of the uh, founding fathers of the United States. Even Thomas Jefferson, unfortunately, said some very stupid things against Toussaint Louverture. You know, of course, this was, <laughs> he was, this was, he was not universal, <laughs> to say the <Yeah>. least. <laughs> why is um? Why do you think labor is messing up Brexit? I think they are split between two uh, opposing views. One is, and I'm more inclined towards the first view. One is that nonetheless, Europe guaranteed certain ecological, even uh, even uh, uh, regulation of work, healthcare, and so on, standards. And I think there are good arguments for this work. I don't believe this image of, you know, Brussels center, kind of gigantic bureaucratic machine, which is just sabotaging uh, the progressive reforms. Listen, a friend of mine looked into the history of the conflicts between Central European bureaucracy and uh, 
British government. And if you look at this conflict, you see that I'm, I'm almost all the time on the side of Brussels. For example, under Blair government, Brussels wanted to have uh, to determine all around Europe a minimum of vacancies. How much? How to call it? Holiday, free time. Each worker we employed has to have, and a maximum of working hours per week. Protection of workers' rights. British government, Blair government, opposed it, claiming this will limit our competitivity and so on and so on. Then there were ecological measures and so on and so on. So uh, uh, this is one view. The other view, and I'm afraid some people in British Labour Party still subscribe to this view. The other view is that uh, is that if. Britain gets rid of the control of Brussels bureaucracy, it will be able to impose more radical uh, pro-workers policy and so on and so on. I think not. I think it's clear for what is happening now that, and it's, Boris Johnson is fully aware of this, that Brexit means that United Kingdom will be much more depending on the United States. Mm. This is my this is my pessimist. Is view. it so? It's like I, I Singapore, sorry, not Sweden. Sorry, it's like Singapore, not Sweden. Yes, precisely. Yes, because I. But you know what's the problem? Let me now add a pes- something very pessimist. It's very sad what I will say. Uh, <laughs> do you know that uh, I've seen the video? Do you know when Deng Xiaoping began his reforms, he visited Singapore and was so fascinated that he said. This should be a model for all China, Singapore. And but you know what's so sad? When right wingers say communism failed and so on and so on, let's admit it. What the Chinese succeeded in the last forty years is probably the most explosive economic development in the history of humanity. Mm-hmm. But how did they do it? By put by combining two things which were the true horror of the twentieth century left everywhere. On the one hand, brutal, brutal, the most brutal market competition. On the other hand, strong authoritarian state. So the problem with Singapore model is that at a certain level it works. Mm-hmm. So we have to be, I am totally opposed to it. I think this is a nightmare scenario. I think Singapore is the first sign where the world is moving today global market, but at the same time, strong authoritarian nationalist regimes and so on and so on. From Putin to China, to India, to Turkey, and now even to the United States. So again, it's uh, uh, it's, uh, the, the crucial question, what I miss in today's left. And that's why I like the left which does not just criticize, but as Bernie is doing, Alexandria Octavio Cortes is doing, but they are experimenting with different models. What to do with healthcare? What to do with this, with that? It's absolutely important for the left to develop alternate models. I think this is the true tragedy, I will be very open here, of Venezuela. It's not just, although it is mostly American meddling. It's clear that what Chavez, while he was still in power, tried to do was maybe good, but he didn't really invent an alternate model that would be functioning. 
I'm not saying nothing works here. For example, if you ask me, I still think that an authentic success story, that's why you don't read a lot about it in the newspapers, is Bolivia. Mm-hmm. Yep. They are just slowly doing it in a very reasonable way, but nonetheless, a great amount of emancipatory measures and so on and so on. You see, this is the left that I like. They I have to say, work. Slava, really quick, because I want to ask you two other things about this. But Please, what, do it. But what is... me. I need, I need, uh, I need a sadomaso mistress woman, you know. <laughs> I just read the Financial Times profile of Evo Morales from a couple of days ago yeah. before the election. And it was interesting because for the Financial Times, it was quite sympathetic. And it's and what I do like, I always appreciate that leaders like Avo and Lula, they do, in fact, defeat so much stereotypes and so much bullshit in our narratives just simply by their uh, their success and existence. And Avo had one point in the article where he's talking with the you know, and he's out, he's campaigning, they're eating pork together, all, you know, he's very much a man of the people. But then he looked and he said, well, you know, what I've learned is fiscal management is very important. You know, he said something that sounded like a banker on the top but, of but, but the cutting left, poverty in half and earning yeah, global but, respect. But, but again, the left, yes. this, that's what I like. And don't forget another person. I know him personally. We are even kind of friends. The true genius behind, I'm not denigrating Evo, is Alvaro Garcia Linera, the vice president. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. A good the- you should invite him once, my God. A very good theoretician. And he has no illusions. For example, you know all the bullshit of Let's return to pre-modern traditions, old tribal councils, old Latino American native wisdoms. She has no illusions. She told me, yes, we did this. We have tribal representatives in La Paz with the government. But he said this can also open up another path of corruption and so on and so on. She, they are very realist. That's the left that I like. At the same time, radical left. They do certain measures which hurt and so on and so on. But at the same time, pragmatic, but not in the sense of dirty compromises, but in the sense of this basic responsibility. They know we are now in power. People don't expect from us just big phrases and so on. They expect better life at everyday level and so on and so on. Because, you know, I'm getting in my old age sick and tired of these big events like Tahrir Square, Syntagma Square, one million people on the street. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My question is, what happens the morning after when this drunkenness with big events is over? How do ordinary people feel the change when things return to normal? Don't you agree that this is the crucial test? No, absolutely. Well, I mean, not only is that the crucial test, it's the, I mean, a lot of those events which have been so inspiring and people have risked so much to do, they end up, I mean, this is the situation in some ways right now in Sudan. There's incredible physical bravery, extraordinary organizing. Yeah. And then what happens is, is uh, well, Bashir is gone. That's great. But essentially it's a coup. Now the people are smart enough and strategic and brave enough to stay on the street because they know it's a coup, yeah. but there still isn't that fundamental sort of shift. And the model for this is for me, for example, what happened with so-called Arab Spring in Egypt, 
Yes, they got democracy and they, they got Muslim brothers in power. And now all my friends are telling me the uh, Sisi regime, the only thing I like about Sisi is his name, which indicates what he is. Sorry for the vulgarity. I never can. <laughs> I was the missing vulgarity. the vulgarity, actually. But, uh, I was expecting more. The Sisi more. regime, they claim, is even from the purely liberal standpoint of human rights debate, much worse than Mubarak. Mm-hmm. Under Mubarak, leftist opposition was allowed. There were some small, very critical, even Marxist journals. And so it was modest. But now the situation, standard of living is lower. There is more poverty and so on and so on. I mean, it's, uh, you, you, you see, we, uh, but now I will say a thing which will probably be problematic for you, maybe <laughs> even. It costs me a lot when I say this. You know, uh, let's, not patronize so-called ordinary people. That's my problem with uh, with uh, populism. I don't trust this old Maoist slogan, go to the people mixed with ordinary people. If in Mao's case, this was farmers, uh, learn from them and so on. No, we are in such a complex, crazy situation that I'm not saying we intellectuals know it, but you will not get an answer from simply from ordinary people. Take ecology. What to do? It's a big mess. We don't know what to do. We will not learn the answer simply listening to the ordinary people. I don't denigrate them. I respect them. But they are confused. They are at a loss. They lack orientation. And here, I'm saying this with certain arrogance, and I don't mean me, I mean generally, I cannot do this, namely, we intellectuals have to provide a vision. Hmm. People need leaders, not in the authoritarian sense. I almost always emphasize this distinction. A true leader is not the one who knows better than you, what do you want? A true leader is the one who makes you aware of what you are able of, of your freedoms. The true leader's message is, yes, you can, but not in the Obama sense. I was going to say. Yes, yes, you can read. You want to revise Obama for the modern age. Yeah, but you know what was the truth of Obama? Do you remember that wonderful play with words? How? Yes, we can. Yes, we can became yes, we scan. Through, uh, <laughs> through uh, <laughs> scanning and so on. Uh, the last thing, if I'm allowed, then yes, you can please. cut me short. That's why, not that I have my God, he's a subhuman entity, uh, Trump, but I am not so at ease as it may appear with these impeachment attempts, not because Trump is beneath contempt. My point is this one. Uh, what if we learned anything from great whistleblowers like Penning, uh, Assange, Snowden, yeah. <laughs> sorry, is that the true threat to our freedoms does not come from evil, corrupted individuals twist their state power for their own interest and so on. The true evil, by evil I simply mean new forms of servitude, control, domination, are inscribed into the very functioning of our state machinery apparatuses. For example, what NSA is doing connected with Facebook, Google, and so on and so on. An incredible new network of social control and manipulation is emerging here. 
So don't make things easier and focus just on corrupted individuals. The true task today is to discern the unfreedom embodied in how our state apparatuses function. That's why I don't like this easy story, oh, corrupted Trump. No, the problem, the ultimately the problem is not corrupted Trump. The pro- uh, again, my, uh, my problem with just focusing on Trump is double. First, it's not him, it's the system. And point two, you know, I never trusted that liberal mocking Trump, jerk idiot and so on. The big question is, what was wrong with our liberal societies that it gave birth to horror like Trump? Trump didn't fall from the moon. Trump exploited certain inconsistencies, antagonisms, which are already here, which are inherent to the predominant liberal vision. So my point is to really get rid of Trump. We, on the side of freedom, dignity, human rights, have to move a little bit further to the left. That's what Bernie says. That's what Bernie Bernie says that in every speech. Bernie is right against those Biden-type conformists claim let's not move too much to the left we must occupy the center but my main argument against this is trump himself trump won precisely by pushing things to the extreme on his side even the republican establishment thought trump is unelectable you remember Mm -hmm. almost all the great established name of republican party said uh, Bush older, Bush younger, and so on. They all said we will vote for Hillary, and so on. And it didn't work. So let's not. That sometimes the paradox of politics is to get real majority. The path is not let's be in the middle compromise, but to radicalize things a little bit. Here, true politics begins to reshift the playing field. And and also yes. I would and yes. and and I also really. Well, just two more things, because we only have a couple of minutes left. But I just also think the other thing that's so important is that um, his vulgarity and Trump's vulgarity and he's grotesque and he's evil and he's vulgar and all the rest, every adjective. And and even people like me recommend, you know, supported uh, Clinton over him to, you know, and, and all the rest of it. The fact that he is also quite funny, if the only option that in a television and entertainment space if the option is fake non-substantive moralism and appeals to discredited sort of public reaffirmations of decency and all the stuff that people know is bullshit next to a guy who's incredibly funny and bizarre Again, the only alternative to me actually goes back to not matching it with its own thing on the left, as funny as it would be, but the fundamental decency we talked about in the beginning. And that's Sanders again. Yes, but uh, at the same time, I would also say that, uh, you know, one should really study Trump to learn how all these vulgarities and so on. These are parts of his uh, working class appeal. This is how he establishes contact with ordinary people right. and so on. Right. One has to beat him here, not with some kind of a high manners uh, 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 liberalism and so on and so on. That's Trump's strength. I think yes. that the, uh, 
the way to do it is not to make only fun of Trump's vulgarities, because he's not vulgar all the way through. For example, when he, and this is for me, Trump at his most disgusting, doesn't he usually at his shows when he speaks to his partisans, followers, embrace the American flag and so on and so on. Right. You know, all the, 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 one should focus on points where he wants to appear sincere. Yes. Now I'm really patriotic. And here he's the most ridiculous. One yes. should make fun of him there, not when he uses vulgarities and so on and so on. Although it would be funny if, if, uh, if, if Bernie said that he wasn't well in doubt. I would go for that. Yeah, but on the other hand, uh, yeah, yeah, I know, I know, I know. No, but but uh, again, uh, I think that the situation in the United States and in Europe, we are no better. What is happening now in Europe? Right. It's so serious that, you know, it's not just a question of one elections and so on. I think the way things are appearing now, if he will not be destroyed by this impeachment, then... Trump may well get re-elected. And the nightmare is this one. Let's say Trump is impeached. Whom do we get then? Your vice president, which is, I'm almost more afraid of him, if you ask me. (laughs) (laughs) It might be easier to beat, though. I just want to say, all right, one final question. And I hope, first of all, I hope you will join us again in the future. Whatever you want. And I want to just tell everybody, uh, if you've watched this far, no. I will not be asking Slavoj about the uh, Joker. I don't care. But what I really no, do want to know is... Okay, I, I agree because this is not a big theoretical... Sorry, this is not a big yes. political point, uh, Joker. It's just a theoretical point about why I don't believe in... I, I'm not sure how to read the film, but most of my friends read it as providing a kind of social, social psychological genesis of joker i don't think this is the right approach on the other hand i have a certain as i said on that capo appearance of mine a certain you know what i like in joker that all figures of authority hypocritically like to point out we are one thing publicly but privately we are warm persons and so on and so on joker is just his mask there is nothing beneath his mask. No warm human person and so on and so on. And this is for me the moment of truth. All totalitarian leaders, Stalin, Hitler, played the opposite game. You know, I do cruel thing on because of, or sorry, on behalf of the big cause I'm standing for, but privately I like cats, I like small children, I'm a good guy. No, there is no warm human inner side. You know why I like this? Just to conclude, because I don't believe in this stupidity of to understand the situation, you have to understand the other. How do they see it? One of the most, I often repeat this stupid, multiculturally saying that I know is the one of an enemy is the person who, to whose story we were not ready to listen. I say, Hello, are you serious? So Hitler was our enemy because we were not ready to listen to his story. I think that if we can learn anything from 20th century history, is that all horrible terrorist regimes were always able 
to construct a wonderful, sincere, poetic, religious story to justify their horrors. This is not the truth. The truth is in what you do publicly, not in the beautiful poems and so on you invent to justify it. Mm. What in the final question? Do you? I read your piece you just put up um, about Rojava, and I yes. do you have a message of solidarity for Rojava and the Kurds? Absolutely, I'm because you know why? Because as I wrote there, of course, they are not angels in the sense of purity, they have their own corruption, struggles, and so on. But I followed the situation very closely there. What shocked me is that whenever they were given a little bit of a breathing space. They did incredible things. People attacked me because in that in that article that you were kind enough to mention, uh, I talk also about the Kurdish feminism. They say, ha ha, are you kidding? No, I'm not. Do you remember it was even in our media when uh, Kurds from Rojava region were fighting ISIS? The key role was played by feminine soldiers mm-hmm. and so on. It's unique in the Middle East and so on. Even... I know the situation in detail. Uh, the uh, imprisoned uh, uh, Ocalan, uh, leader of uh, Turkish Kurds, you know that in prison he turned a feminist now. He proposes this uh, 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 sexual openness to other sex practices, uh, women's well, and so on and so on. They are an absolutely incredible phenomenon. The only like glimmer of hope in that area where all other stations around are, again, just drowning in their patriotic, national, totally corrupted sovereignty, like, let's call them, Turkey, Iraq, Syria. They are the only glimmer of hope, and of course, they will probably be destroyed. It's and forgive, forgive me, I just want to add, there's another echo of it, and that is actually the Kurdish HDP political party in Turkey, who broadened out a social democratic base, ecological, feminist, and labor. They performed well. Now they're political prisoners in Erdogan's Turkey, and it echoes exactly what you're talking about. Yeah, but isn't this a nice paradox? Because as I said in the text of mine, we perceive automatically, because we were fed by these stories, Kurds had some primitive tribal part. No, they are the most secular, modern part of Turkish society. It's incredible, I mean. Slava Zizek, thank you so much. I hope you'll do this again with us. Uh, maybe and even I hope I will do it uh, face to face, not through this stupid media and so on. <laughs> I would love to visit you. I like Brooklyn. You know why? Because why? in some part of Brooklyn, you have now uh, uh, where there are all those new skyscrapers and so on. They opened there another cat restaurant. And you get the best macho bullshit. <laughs> I like, I don't like Jewish food in Israel. It's the same shit as the Arab food, hummus, all that bullshit. I like Eastern European Jewish food, macho ball and so you on. You like the real and, thing. You like the knishes. You like the real shit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. And you can get it better one than on Manhattan. You get it in Brooklyn. So I'm with you. Okay, brother. Well, I'll see you soon. If we do a talk there, I invite you to Macho Ball. Beautiful. Let's do it. I'm going to hold you to it. Slavo, thanks very much. I I hope you enjoyed this. This was so much fun. I did. It's a breath of fresh air again. I'm ill in a bad mood, and I was able to forget for 45 minutes 
the misery of my existence here now. That's the highest Thank of you. compliments.